The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of Your Included, New Testament scholar Dr. Douglas Campbell looks at examples of how Paul brought the gospel and purpose to the mission field. Our host is Dr. Michael Morrison. Well, Douglas, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Now, you've spent a lot of your time, your scholarly work, working on Paul. You've got a couple big books here about Paul. And uh, you said in one of the earlier interviews that you are interested in the life of Paul. Yes. But maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, a lot of us are familiar with the conversion of Paul from the book of Acts. Uh, but how does right. Paul himself describe his conversion? Yes. Um, we're actually a little bit too familiar with this conversion from the book of Acts. We don't pay enough attention, I think, to how he tells us he got converted. He never actually uses the language of conversion at all when he's describing what happened to him. He uses the language of call, and he echoes the call narratives of Jeremiah and Isaiah rather strongly uh, to emphasize that um, God really encountered him in a very direct and dramatic way. What took place was a revelation. So on one level, what happened to him is extremely important for us to understand, which is, which is that a meeting with God took place that God initiated, very unexpected. On another level, I think it's a little dangerous to make Paul's, quote, conversion, unquote, the paradigm for our conversion, because I think he had something very special happen to him. Uh, really, he was called to be an apostle. I'm not sure that all of us are called to be an apostle. And <laughs> some of us, maybe. And I've never been struck down uh, in the way that Paul was. So, but does his story uh, have any exemplary value for the conversions that we have? Oh, sure, I think it does. Um, but I think we also need to look harder at what he was doing, how he was converting people. And what we find is there's a network of friendships and relationships that's spreading. And he's, he's utilizing networks, sometimes in quite unexpected ways, so that people are actually converting in the context of relationships that they already have. So, for example, he, he often tries to hook up with uh, family networks or Jewish networks where he's visiting. But when those don't work, um, he goes and takes employment as a hand worker and he begins to make friends with the people in the workshop. So, for example, this is roughly how he met Lydia. Lydia was involved in, in hand working and textiles. Um, she's somebody, obviously, who's networking with women. So he's not just staying in the networks with men. Um, I think he's probably also working uh, veteran networks when he can as well. Remember, there's a veteran at Philippi, Epaphroditus. Oh, right. uh, there's another veteran uh, probably at Colossae. Um, and these are retired colonies um, of soldiers that have retired from the Roman army, have done their 25 years of service, uh, and they kept in touch with one another, and they pro probably were working in, in textile. So what we see is Paul doing something very typical of a new religion, which is sort of playing hopscotch from network to network uh, and exploiting those networks 
and those relationships and people who know him and are friends of his, become friends of his or are friends of friends, they're converting and, and forming the basis of his new communities. So could he go into a, a, a city and start a church in three weeks, for example? Is that- well, it, this is a bit of an exaggeration, I think. <clears throat> in the ancient world, if you went into a city cold and you didn't know anybody, you would die. They didn't know you. You had no food. You had no, you had no water. You, if you fell ill, you dropped on the street. You had nowhere to stay. You had to have contact, contacts. These are, these are very hostile missionary environments. Uh, they don't like strangers coming in and telling them that the way that they've been doing things for hundreds of years is wrong. Uh, so you really need to know somebody who's there already. And once you've linked up with them, stayed with them for a bit, you need to try and hook on to the sorts of networks and friendships that that person has. And this is what we see him doing. In each city around the Mediterranean, he knows somebody who knows somebody. Mm. And he goes and stays with them and then links up with somebody else. So it's all, it's all about who you know. Well, what kind of message would he then preach in that uh, situation? Is well, it- would Sure. How would he introduce them to Jesus? Well, this undermines our slightly stereotypical notion of of Paul arriving and preaching one dramatic proclamatory message that people then respond to with some sort of decision. You know, the altar call takes place on the corner of the streets of Corinth and the Corinthians all come forward. This is not how it worked. When you're working with somebody, say you're a hand worker, say, say you're working on leather or you're working on sandals or stitching canvas awnings or something like that, you don't preach at them all day. You chat with them. Mm. Uh, you get to know them. And you're probably listening to them as much as you're talking at them. So a conversation takes place over many days and weeks and months. And then you turn around after that process and lo and behold, these people believe what you're saying. You're telling them the story about how the spirit who, who once created everything is also gathering us up into this person. Um, so it's, it's language that they can understand, but it's also language that, that challenges them. Um, it will make more sense if you've heard Jews speaking, probably, um, if you've hung around the local synagogue, um, which you could do if you've heard these types of stories about the God of Israel before. That's going to help you. But Paul obviously is quite happy to communicate, even if you've never heard of that, that material. He can, he can translate his, his good news into your idioms and, and your thought forms. So he can talk about um, adoption or benefaction, grace. Uh, these are things that every Greek and Roman would know about. They would know about having a patron. They would know about being gifted things. They would know about being adopted into someone's family. They would know about being immersed as a ritual of entry. So, so this is Paul communicating also in the language of the street, uh, I think, in a way that makes sense. So he's a... He's a He's a very good missionary. He knows what he's doing. He's contextualizing. Oh, you mentioned immersion. That was one of my questions there, is at what point then would Paul baptize these people? Did he realize that they had kind of crossed over from one religious belief I to think another? So. I think so. I mean, I think uh, sometimes there's a dramatic moment when you can point your finger at something and say, you know, an event has taken place here and we need to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and you would get baptized along with all your household. At other times, I suspect that the process was gradual, but at some point, um, it's appropriate for you to get baptized to signify the reality that you're now standing in. 
And it would, this would be one of the things that took place. You would attend the communal meals where the Christians gathered together. And, and these are meals taking place every day. And these are meals. I mean, a lot of people in ancient times were hungry. Maybe two-thirds of the population was hungry. One-third of the population was very hungry. They lived from hand to mouth. Um, so you went to Christian meals. You went to Christian celebrations of the sacraments, partly because they were offering you food. Uh, but in the middle of the food was the breaking of the bread and the passing around of the cup. So you're participating in this. As Wesley would say, probably the cup and the bread are functioning like converting ordinances mm. at that time. They're making the reality of Christ present to you. And you, the cup is going around and the bread is being broken and eaten and people are saying, we're all part of this. This is all one with us and we are one with someone who died but also who is alive now and who is present with us now in a real way. And I assume that like most Greek meals, you had the food first and then you had the entertainment afterwards. So the singing would begin, the Christian singing. People maybe would have brought along a song, which was extremely democratic, and the worship would begin and you would get a sense, goodness me, we're in the presence of the living God here. So the people found themselves in a community. Exactly, a worshipping community, and they were gathered up into its worship. And I think in this way, probably many were, were pretty powerfully affected. I mean, this is pretty exciting stuff for an ancient Greek, you know, especially if you're a woman. You didn't have access to this type of stuff uh, ordinarily. But these Christians were kind of strangely democratic. You could, if you're a woman, you could come along, you could bring a song, you could prophesy, you could pray, you could participate, as long as you didn't humiliate your husband in public, which is still probably a good rule of thumb. By and by. This is, this is how these meetings operated. They were very vital and, and very participatory. Is, is it just a story that Paul is telling, or is there something there that he's also uh, exhorting them mm. to, uh, to, to, to make a decision? Uh, to, how would he go about you know, growing this uh, community or, making, or solidifying it? Right, yes. It's, it's not just a story. It's a story about a reality that you're part of and that reality has certain claims on you, if you like, has a certain shape. Um, it has a certain set of relationships built into it that you have to respond to. And Paul is expecting um, a response. He is expecting, he has very high expectations of his converts. He's got very high expectations of their behavior. And there's a strong emphasis on ethics, and particularly on what we might call the ethics of relationships. Mm. Um, and this is where Paul is innovating, where the Spirit of God is doing something exciting but also slightly intimidating in the sense that if you were a Jew, um, you would be expecting to do a lot of your responding to God in the temple at Jerusalem, uh, in a particular place, in a particular building, in a certain state of purity. You'd be expecting to do a lot of your responding to God in accordance with fairly strict calendrical observances, fairly strict diet. And Paul's view is that stuff is now pretty negotiable. Um, if you're a Jew, you should still do it, unless you're called to engage with another constituency. But the pagans that he's calling into his communities off the street, uh, what he's challenging them with is really the interrelational stuff that we see so much of in the Bible. So how do I relate to you? Am I bitter towards you, angry, hostile, backbiting, slanderous? Am I in a status game with you? All of that stuff has to stop. How do I speak to you? How do I talk with you? Am I charitable? Am I humble? 
Um, these sorts of things. This is what Paul is really pushing his people to do. Um, well, pushing is the wrong expression. He's talking about something that's drawing them into this in a new way, I think. So the motivation for good behavior is quite different, I don't know, than at least... Yeah, very much so. It's not a... That's well, like these people, He's offering them a gift of salvation, but once they're already saved, then what's the motive for them to do what is right? Right, That's, right. Well, he's, he's offering them really um, participation in a new reality. And so when you're in that new reality, you've been set free from a whole lot of stuff. Uh, that is really dragging you down and fracturing you and breaking you and harming you. Um, and you see more clearly what the good things, what the good things are in life that God wants you to do. And basically, you're an idiot if you don't want to do that. So he's painting a new that. reality. That's... He's not painting it uh, in the way that we would limit things to that. You're right. He is depicting something that's really here. So he's, he's witnessing, in a way, to a reality. So his stories um, and his depictions are helping Christians to understand what's really going on. So it's exciting. He's, this is why he calls himself an apostle. He's a diplomat who's announcing the good news of what God is doing, and what God is doing is really what matters. That's what's central, and that's what's, what's real. And that's why, if you're a Christian, you, you're characterized in part by belief, which is you understand what's going on. You're the one that's walking around with your eyes open. You're the one that's in the daylight. Other people are stumbling around in the dark with their eyes closed. You're the one that really knows what reality is all about. But see, that's, that's exciting. That's an exciting summons. You know, he's stitching away in his little leather work, stitching the soles of his sandals, and he's talking about this stuff to these other impoverished stone workers around him, and they're getting kind of interested in it. They're going, sounds like a good deal. <laughs> I was thinking, once he builds this community, then he leaves. Uh, what, what are they going to think of that? Or, you know, how, he long would he stay, how long would he be staying in a, a city? Yeah, well, it looks as though he stayed for about a year and a half, roughly, um, depending on how things went. And then he shot off, which, which, which strikes us as rather shocking. But he did keep in touch with everybody. Um, we've got all these letters because even after he'd left, he was still networking with these communities um, and when you see the thought and the effort that has gone into these texts, um, you realize how much they're actually still on his mind. And if they get into trouble, he's on a boat straight away mm. and shooting back to visit them. Um, but you're right, he's a missionary, so he's church planting. So his plan is to put these communities in place and then move on in the hope and expectation that they will flourish and also begin to do the same around them. I think that's probably the plan, yeah. As I understand it, letter writing wasn't that easy in, in antiquity, uh, and yet he invested quite a bit of, I don't know, maybe financial resources to yes. be able to do this. Yes, uh, yes. He's, uh, as you say, he's main, keeping that relationship there. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it is a big investment, yeah. It's an investment of time, too. But then he also wrote to some places that he had not been before. Couple of times, yeah. Um, well, he's Paul believes, as I said at the start, that God has revealed Himself to him and revealed Christ to him, and he also believes that God has revealed Christ to him in a way that has special significance for people converting out of paganism. 
not for other Jews. And so when pagans are converting around the place, even when they haven't converted through his direct ministry, he feels quite protective about them. And uh, thankfully, writes a letter occasionally to sort them out. So we have, I think, Ephesians written for precisely this reason. There's a little group of converts. They've converted. They're not Jews. And, And Paul's view was you didn't have to become a Jew to engage with this new reality because the, the Jew-Greek distinction was something that was being transcended. He's, he's not down on Jews. It's just that the whole Jewish, really Jewish people at its history, its nation, is being fulfilled in the Jew, who is Christ. Uh, and we're stepping through now into a new reality. So there's no need to go back and around the long way. So the, kind of the It's controversial, by the way. Uh, he said this. Not everybody uh, liked it. Not, so the important part of a person's identity was not their ethnic category. Exactly, exactly. And that is a shocking thing to say and something that we're still coming to grips with, is it not? I mean, we love to group people. And we love to locate ourselves in groups. Right, you're either with us or, yeah. Exactly. And uh, Paul is saying, no, that's not where you are primarily. Primarily you're characterized by the fact that you're in this person who has died and been resurrected, and now you're beyond. And that's where you are. That's the real you. Um, so it's a, it's a shocking thing to say. It's exciting. It's liberating, but terribly, terribly hard to take on board. Well, right, even, even your expression there, which I know comes from Paul, that you are in a person. How does that translate into our modern concepts? I mean, we're not physically in a person. What, what does Paul mean That's right. There? It's a metaphor. It's a spatial metaphor that I think is trying to convey to us a couple of things. Um, the first thing that I think it's trying to convey is that this is real and concrete. So it's referring to your being. It's referring to what we call your ontology, what, what you're made of, uh, the stuff that really matters, that puts you together. So Paul says you're in Christ. What he's saying is you're no longer in Adam. Now, everybody is in Adam in some sense. It's, it's, it's what we all are. It's how we're all constructed. Comes, comes with the flesh. So to say we're in Christ, yeah, to say we're in Christ is a very strong statement about what we're constructed out of. The other thing I think that he's getting at with the in Christ motif is when you're, you're in something, you're, you're tight, you're inside it, or it's in you, there's a sense of closeness, and intimacy, I think, that's being conveyed by this expression. So he's saying not just that this is just the way you're made, but you're, you're made in a way that's very, very close and intimate with this particular person. The word identity comes to mind here. Is it identification? Yeah, <clears throat> you're closely identified without losing who you are. There's a sense in which, paradoxically, the more involved with Christ you are, the more I think your own personhood is affirmed. And in a way, the more you grasp the distinctions between you and him. That he gives us freedom to be individuals, well, different. I think he gives us the freedom to be persons, not individuals. I think, I think we're persons. Mm. Um, I think we're being rescued from individualism, <laughs> actually. <laughs> um, but our per- a personhood is something that we need something that Mm. we want to have. We want to have full personhood. And that is exactly what I think being in Christ gives us. Yes. So I I see this distinction you've just made between individual and person, and Mm. I I hear you saying that we are really most truly persons when we are in community. Yes, in relationship, very much so. That's 
ties back in with our new reality is in these relationships. It's an interpersonal and reality. And because it's a, it's a communion characterized by these relationships all interlinking and lacing together. So it follows that the more invested we are and involved in this community, the more fully personal we actually are. And it's all in Christ. Yeah, we tend to think of being in a community and being in an individual as a zero-sum game. The more community, the less individuality, the more individuality. It's, it's almost like people are bubbles, you know, little areas of space, and they, they can't exist with somebody else without popping. Yeah, um, personal <clears throat> space. You know, that's, right, yeah. that's right. Our culture is telling us this all the time. Uh, and this is actually a fundamentally wrong understanding of what being a person is all about, according to the gospel and according to what Paul is telling us. Being a person is all about actually investing heavily in these relationships with other people. It's all about being relational. And that's why Paul spends so much time telling that's people. exactly right. He is a what very relational do. person. That's right. So, so exactly right. So your personhood is bound up with how these relationships are functioning. So there shouldn't be a strong distinction between who you are and how you behave. They're both parts of the same thing. So like in the first part of the letter, you can say you're, you're, you're not saved by what you do. But then later in the letter, he, he talks about what you're supposed to do. Right. Well, he's, he's, he's getting at slightly different things there. I think um, when he says you're not saved by what you do, what he's trying to emphasize is that you don't access this reality yourself by doing anything and you don't control it by doing anything. There's nothing that you can bring to this party that isn't being done for you. But when you're involved with it, there's an awful lot that you're asked to do by way of response. It's a vi- he's coming from a very different place when he says that. Asking people to behave ethically and in a good way by way of response, is a, it's just a completely different ball game from telling them to shape up so that they can get involved in something. Very, very different things going on there. I like the way you put it earlier. He's I don't know, inviting them to participate in a new reality, and that reality is in these good relationships. Yeah. I mean, I could put it even more strongly and say he's inviting them to recognize this new reality, because I think there's a sense in which God is reaching out to us and working in us and doing things for us, even when we're not. So it's already there, even... I think it's, 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 it's closer than the heartbeat in your throat, you know? Um, but it doesn't help us much if we're not cooperating, recognizing, responding, and obeying. So that's part of the, I don't know, faith response? Exactly. That's exactly right, yeah. Faith, in a way, is just recognizing what's there. And in a way, uh, we're also gifted the ability to do that. My advice is not to resist it too strongly. And I imagine that Paul's advice was kind of similar. Don't resist the reality that has come upon you. Why would you do that? We'll have a a choice in what they actually believe and uh, accept. if, If you've told a... Uh, described reality well enough, uh, isn't it going to automatically say, well, yes, that's right, uh, without me making a specific decision. Okay, I will have faith in this. I'm not yes, sure if it's right, yes. but I will have faith. Well, it's easy to lose our way at this point, very easy. Um, what I would say is it's really important that we respond to this reality freely, and, and this is free. Um, and we, we really need to respond with everything we've got. There's no, there's no limitation, no statute of limitations on how much we need to give to this. We, we, we give it everything. 
all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. But I wouldn't describe this as a choice that we're making. I think uh, the only choice that we would make in this situation would probably be a choice to do the dumb thing, which is to sin or resist or reject. And this is what gets us into trouble. And we tell ourselves, oh, it's okay if we push back on this reality. It's okay if we, if we disobey, if we, if we reject a certain amount of what's going on here. But the Bible basically calls this transgressing or sinning uh, because there's something stupid and destructive about it. And, and my advice is not to do it. <laughs> you know, I, I, w- I wouldn't present the gospel in such a way that you had a choice to walk away from it because it's a declaration. Uh, of reality. Now you can respond to the reality that's in front of you. You can walk away if you really want to, but you're denying what is. And there's just something a little bit foolish about it. And this is why we get the declaring language coming through so strongly. Proclaiming. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. This is how it is. Why why wouldn't you be (laughs) involved with this? The gospel is good news and not a good invitation. That's right. It's, it's a declaration. That's right. Mm, exactly. There's a slightly different way of thinking about what's going on, but it's not aggressive because, as I said before, it's, it's worked through in these conversational settings. So people are often converting as this washes over them. You're not in putting time. people on the spot. That's right. Not at all. No. You're actually getting to know them, welcome them into your, your home, feed them, listen to them talk with them, have a good time with them, share this sort of thing with them. And if it, particularly if it aligns with how you behave, that will be a powerful witness. And you'll turn around and after a few months or years, most of those people will have joined your community. And those people will like what they see of the gospel in you. That's right. Yeah, you'll mediate the truth of the gospel. Uh, Fortunately, it won't be entirely down to you. (laughs) Or me, <laughs> That's which is a good thing. <laughs> That's right. With God's grace, <laughs> we will imperfectly mediate the gospel. Yeah, very much so. You were mentioning faith there, and it made me think, too, of uh, you know, something you have written about in, in the book about the faith of Abraham. Uh, right, right. Hmm. What kind of, you know, the way the faith is described in, in Romans uh, is really kind of astounding uh, hmm. and is, is this the kind of faith that we need to have? I hope not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, Abraham's example is, is used sometimes in a way that can be a little bit destructive and challenging, I think, um, as, if, as if we are to access this reality by choosing to have faith like Abraham, which opens up the door for fellowship with God and the way Paul describes Abraham's faith as unwavering, without doubt. Um, and we need to read between the lines there. We skip over the fact that Paul is playing with two different stories. He's playing with um, Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and also with Genesis 21 and 22. So what's going on is the promise of a son, miraculously to Abraham, from his sterile loins. Uh, and Abraham had to wait around about 14 years, uh, from the age of 86-ish through to the age of about 100. Without ever wavering. Without wavering, yeah. Now, if that's what we have to do to become a Christian, we're all in deep, deep trouble. (laughs) But if in this unwavering trust in God, 
we see actually an echo of Christ. And then we see Abraham as an anticipation of Christ's unwavering faithfulness to the point of death and his resurrection. Then we see faith as a gift that we can receive in Christ, from Christ. Um, And at that point, all things become possible. If this is not something we're having to generate for ourselves, but something that God is giving us, we're built into and that we grow into, then it starts to make, make sense. Then it starts to make sense as an aspect of our discipleship rather than a criterion of, of entry. So when Paul was telling this story, it, he wasn't using it as an example? Or he was... I don't think so. I, I don't think he was using it as an example of how we get saved. Um, I do think he was using it as a story that spoke about Christ um, and spoke about unwavering fidelity through suffering if necessary until a miraculous life-creating event takes place. And he was probably saying, look, if you go back to the start of Israel, uh, what happened? Well, it was a resurrecting event in which a a person of great faithfulness endured uh, for a long time, and then suddenly the Spirit of God created somebody miraculously out of a situation that was basically dead. And now here we are talking about Jesus Christ, somebody who faithfully in an unwavering way walked to death and then was raised from the dead. So life was miraculously created. So we're standing, my friends, in the presence of the very fulfillment of the nation of Israel. This is where it was always going all along. But Abraham only prefigured. Exactly. Yeah. In the patriarchs, we get this prefiguration of what has come to, to fulfillment in the gospel. So he's not the example of what we do, but the example of what God does. Exactly, exactly, yes. And what God does is gift us with life, life from the dead. You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.